I know what you're thinking. And that is not our associate pastor candidate, who I will be introducing him very shortly. Hey, at this time, our children are dismissed. Thank you for being with us and worshiping with us. Just do it. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's pretty good motivation. Just go do it. Just get on with it. Just go big or go home. Stop dreaming and just do it. Nothing's impossible, but it can't be done. No, 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 no. Don't tell me what I can't do. Stop trying. I mean, don't stop trying. Don't stop striving. Don't stop believing. Yes, yes, you can. You can do it. And that's the message we need to hear, right? It's the message all of us need to hear more of, right? Oh, but deep down inside, deep down inside, reality seems to set in, and it says to us, for certain things, no, you can't. No, you can't. It can't be done. It actually is impossible. And that's why when we hear people making outlandish promises, we go, yeah, right. That's why sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but you sat there in a, a, a wedding ceremony and you heard these two people promise till death do us part. And you go, I give that one maybe a year and a half. Last week, Pastor Jim shared with us God's covenant with Abraham. The promise itself was nothing new. It actually, to begin with, it wasn't all that spectacular. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abram, and your descendants, they are going to inherit this great land of Canaan. That sounds great. That's good news. That's a promise that I would believe in. And yet as time went on, and Abraham and his wife Sarah got older and older and older. What was once a welcome promise now just seemed like a ridiculous promise. Abraham said to himself in 1717, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? No way. No way, it's just crazy. Some things are just impossible, right? At one of the last uh, student ministry winter camps that I led, I had a conversation with one of our seniors, not from this church, another church, and he came up to me and he said, Jared, there's just no hope for me. There's no hope. I, I enjoy the drugs too much. I've sinned too great. I'm too far gone. I can't be rescued. I can't be saved. And in one sense, he was right. But in another sense, he was very, very wrong. Are there things that you and I look at in our lives, promises that God has made to us that we're still struggling with, still wrestling with, Maybe you come to church and you sing the songs and you go through the motions and you say, even with your lips, I believe, but deep down inside, you're, you're wrestling. How could God love someone like me? 
I'm not really sure that there is an afterlife, not really sure if there's a heaven, but I, I know this, after all that I've done, I shouldn't be going there. Or maybe you wrestle with, uh, I, I've heard it said that, that God will never leave me or forsake me, and yet, why do I feel so alone? Or, I, I know that Jesus said he was going, he, he overcame the world. <laughs> but seriously? It seems like everything that I'm seeing, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. How's God going to unite all things to himself like like we're told he was going to in Ephesians chapter 1. Or how about this? I don't think God is big enough to help me overcome my depression. Or I, I worry so much that I'm not sure if God ever re- really will be able to give me peace. Or I've been wrestling with this particular addiction. I just cannot seem to break free. I don't think that God can even help me with this one. Or my child has become so hostile, so embittered, so diametrically opposed to who I am and the faith that I have in God that I don't see how they could ever come back around. It just seems impossible. Let's take a look at our passage this morning. And as we do, my hope and prayer is that we will walk away with greater confidence in the great promise maker. Let's take a look at Genesis 18. And we're going to read verses 1 through 15 together. Would you stand with me out of honor, out of respect, out of awe and reverence for God's word that we hold in our hands here? Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out? And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's what happens. In the heat of the day, the sun is hanging high. Abraham sat in the shade of his tent. Maybe he was taking a break from a long morning's work. He was cooling off. He was resting up for the remainder of the day. And that's when three men show up. And Abraham, 100 years old, runs out to meet them. And he immediately, he bows himself low. Apparently, there was something about these three men that, that, that told Abraham that they were no ordinary travelers. Now, there's no indication here that right at the beginning that Abraham knew that they were anything more than men or, or who they were. He addresses them, at least one of them, as Lord. But the word that he uses for Lord is the word Adonai, and that was a common word, just meant master, recognizing the relationship here. I am your servant. You are, you are the, the person of honor, in a position of honor. And yet the way that Abraham rallies his troops and starts getting ready for this, this meal that he's going to have with them, that indicates that he believed that these men were rather important. Essentially, he rolls out the red carpet for them, and he begs them to rest. Wait, well, he prepared a little bread, a morsel, it says, and some water. But he immediately rushes off and orders Sarah, three seas of flour. Do you know how much that is? That's six gallons of flour. That is quite a bit. I hope these guys were hungry. And not only were cakes ordered up, but he had a whole calf prepared along with curds. That's yogurt and milk. This was no afternoon snack. This was a feast in the making. As I said, I don't think Abraham knew immediately who he was entertaining, but he was definitely pulling out all of the stops. The meal, the way he bowed himself, his address to the one as Lord or Master, it, it was definitely fitting, wasn't it? Had he known from the get-go who had come to dinner, I don't expect that he, he could have. Maybe he would have wanted to do, but I don't expect he could have done much more than he was already doing. This was going to be a, a, a real meal, a dinner of dinners, a feast of feasts. And it wouldn't be, what would make this meal so great wouldn't just be the, all the preparations that Abraham was making here. What would really make this the feast of feasts would be the one who came to dinner, who was dining with them. You know, people will pay a lot of money to have a meal with someone that they think is important or significant. I listen to uh, a talk radio station every once in a while. They're raising money for charity, and so they'll auction off a meal with one of their talk show hosts, and it just amazes me how these guys will get people wanting to spend thousands of dollars just to spend 
a little bit of time and probably a not-so-great meal uh, with someone who just talks for a living. It's, it's incredible to me. Sometimes $5,000. It's amazing. But then you read of how much people will spend to sometimes have dinner with uh, a U.S. president. I read somewhere this week that someone paid about $40,000 to have a meal with Barack Obama. That's amazing. It is incredible. Why do they do it? Well, I think that the big piece of it is they want to give that money to charity. But I think the bigger piece of it is that they want to just have a moment. A moment getting to know and being known by, by a person of great influence. A person of greatness or, or prestige. But you know, as great as a person may be, no president, no king, no celebrity can compare with the guest that Abraham had right here. This was God himself. Hebrews 13, 2 tells us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's exactly what's happening here. And not just angels, but one of them is God himself. And what more powerful expression could God give Abraham of his personal relationship that he had with him than to sit down and have a meal with them? We don't see this happen very often in the Bible. In fact, this is the first and this is the only place in the Bible before Jesus comes where God literally sits down and has a meal with a human being. Why should Abraham be the recipient of this great honor? Why should he be, receive this great blessing? Why was he so deserving of this special attention, this special recognition, relationship with God? It wasn't because Abraham was any better than anyone else. He was a sinner, a rule breaker, a fallen person, just like every other human being that has ever lived. Like everyone, his relationship with God had suffered a fatal wound by his disobedience. But remember Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so we said several weeks ago, because of Abraham's trust in God, because of his reliance upon him, because he looked to him as his one and only hope and source of salvation, God declared him righteous, not guilty. And God sharing a meal with him was a sign of this special relationship that they had now. This is a man whom he had covenanted with. Jim talked about that last week. This is a man who had been forgiven, who had been made right, who had been washed clean and welcomed into the presence of God. Fast forward to a large upstairs room in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sat and ate with his apostles. After the meal, he picked up a cup and said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Abraham was made right with God as he looked 
forward to the promise and believed in its fulfillment. But Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. And by the blood that was poured out from him at his death, he would become the way for everyone who believes in him to be made right. Because of Jesus, you and I, like Abraham, can have intimacy with God, with the most significant, the most important being in all of existence, and not just by a little bit, not a small margin here. It's the, the difference between the greatest person who's ever lived here and Jesus and God is infinite difference. Jesus shared a meal with his disciples, but he pointed to the deeper reality that he himself, he himself would actually be the meal that everyone would need so that they could have intimacy with God. The wine that was in the cup, it represented his blood. We already said that. The bread that he broke represented his body that would be given as a sacrifice to pay the debt that you and I owe. Jesus himself is the food that you and I need to be made alive to God. He said in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He goes on in verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, Halloween is coming. That's kind of what this sounds like. It sounds like some type of horror movie scene here, but Jesus is using the most powerful graphic language to help us understand our, that our greatest intimacy with God can only be achieved through him by partaking in who he is and what he has done. He is the only way. He was God's plan all along, our one and only hope. Let's look at the rest of our passage. At some point during the meal, the attention now turns to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. I, I think that's when everything must have clicked for Abraham. Up until this point, he knew he was in the presence of somebody special. But when the strangers use Sarah's new name, they use her new name, and then they speak of the promise that God had given Abraham. Remember uh, 17.21, he said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year year. You got the name, you got the promise of a, of a child, and then you have the specific timing that they mentioned here. Instantly, I think Abraham must have known who he was dealing with. And you see the language change, the word for Lord. It's no longer Adonai, but it's, it's Yahweh. 
the name for God. This is God himself. And Sarah was listening in the back of the tent. She heard what was said. She'd probably heard it time and time again from Abraham. You're, just wait, Sarah. Just wait. You're going to have a child. God said it would, would happen. It's going to happen. But I think at this point in her life, that dream had died. I think it had died. The time for having children, it had long since passed. The ship had sailed. So she laughed. And I think it was probably just a spontaneous gut reaction. There's no way. There's no way. There was a time when I believed that that could happen, but no way. Not now. Verse 12 says, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Maybe she still believed in God to some extent. Still believed in him. Still had some type of, of faith in him. But this was just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. And that's where some people find themselves these days. Maybe you have found yourself there. Maybe you're there right now. Where you say, yeah, I believe there's a God. But I'm not sure I can believe all those things the Bible says about him. Maybe you're willing to uh, believe things about God that seem reasonable to you. Or things that, that make sense in your mind. Or, or support the value system that you cling to. Maybe you've chosen to believe in a God that is loving, but just cannot come to grips with the idea that God would ever punish anybody. Or maybe you believe in a God who brings good things into the world, but can't seem to get a hold of the idea that God can tell me who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to live my life. And maybe you believe in a God who, who wants you to go to heaven, but you just can't bring yourself to believe that he would let you in without expecting you to earn it in, in some way. Or maybe you believe that Jesus came to save people from their sins, give them freedom. But as for you, you're just too far gone. I think Sarah was right there. I think she was right there. God's word at this point was just too unbelievable, so she left. And that's when God speaks. Notice the word Lord is in all caps. We already mentioned that. This is Yahweh speaking to her through Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now, this isn't God saying, I'm really confused here. I'm really not sure. Why would she do this? This doesn't make any sense to me. I can do whatever I want. Doesn't she know that? No, that's not what God is doing at all. He's leading Abraham and Sarah to understand something. And as he asks that, I can imagine the, the panic, the sense of vulnerability. And Sarah must have been thinking to herself, did, he hear, did, I, did, did I say that out loud? It says she said this to herself. She laughed to herself said it to herself. He heard that? What? How does he know what I'm thinking? Of course God knew what she was thinking. 
Of course he knew what she was thinking. Later on, one of Sarah's great, 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 dot, 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 grandchildren would write in Psalm 139, O Lord, you searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Of course he knew what she was thinking. He knows everything. There is no creature that is hidden from his sight, according to 1 John 4.13. And wherever you are today, no matter what kind of thoughts are running through your head, no matter what kind of secrets you might be hiding, no matter what kind of doubts plague your mind, it's all exposed to him. He sees it all. And for some, typically for those who trust him, who have had their relationship with, with him restored, that's a very comforting thought. God knows me through and through. He still cares for me. He still loves me. He knows every thought that goes through. That's a comforting thing. But I understand that if you're not a place where your trust is in God, if you haven't come to that place where you know that your sins are forgiven, you have been made right with God, well, that can be a rather disquieting thing. He knows me. He knows what I was thinking just a minute ago. I don't think I like that. And I think that's where Sarah was right here. But you know, the encouraging thing that I see here is that even though he knows us through and through, his love for us is so great that despite all of our faults and failures, despite all of our doubts and disbelief, he reaches out to us and calls us to embrace the truth. That's what he does for Sarah here. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't condemn her. Instead, what does he do? He points her to himself. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That word for hard there, it can also be translated wonderful. Is there anything that is too wonderful, too extravagant, too extraordinary, too magnificent, too spectacular for God? Of course, the answer is no. It's no. After announcing to, to Mary, a young lady who had never never been married, never been with a man, and she's told that she is going to have a child. And that's when the angel declares in Luke 1.36, nothing will be impossible with God. After telling his disciples, it's easier, you know, it's easier, guys, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come into the kingdom of God. Jesus looks at his disciples in Matthew 19.24 and says to them, with man, yeah, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, 17, he wrote this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Job declares in 42, 2, 
I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God says himself in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? The answer is no. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is too extraordinary for him. And because of that, those who know him, those who have a certain intimacy with him, who have brought into right relationship with him, because of that, for those who have been made right with him, nothing is impossible for them either. Nothing is impossible for those who have been made right with God. And that's because nothing is too wonderful, too difficult, too out of reach, or too spectacular for God. In the moment of her unbelief, God points Sarah right back to himself. He pointed her to the reality that nothing is too hard for him. And her response in verse 15 is denial. It's denial. Not, not God, no, I don't think. He's, she's not arguing with him. God, I don't think, you know, everything is possible. I, don't, I think there are some things that are a little too... No, she's not saying that. But what she denies here is her actions. She denied it saying, I did not laugh. I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Probably embarrassed, probably ashamed. Definitely, the text says she was afraid. I didn't laugh. But God doesn't let her get away with it, does he? See, you would think that, uh, that a person often, when, when I find myself in some type of awkward situation where somebody says something that I, I, I know isn't really true, but I know, you know, it, it's kind of like, well, do I really want to upset them right now? I'll just kind of let them believe, yeah, all right, yeah, but, but this is true. You know what? I'll let it slide. God doesn't do that here. She doesn't get away with it. He loved her too much to let her get away with it. Her unbelief couldn't be ignored. Because you see, it's all about belief. Remember, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is what he wants for Sarah. That is what he wants for you. And I pray that he pursues us like he did Sarah, and says, no, I'm not going to let you get away with this denial here. I'm not going to let you get away with it. It needs to be brought out into the light. Unbelief cannot be ignored, denied, swept under the rug. God wants you and I to trust him. He wants us to come to the place where we acknowledge our unbelief. We admit it. We acknowledge our doubts, acknowledge our neediness, acknowledge our sin, trust in his limitless ability to do the impossible. Are there things that God wants to do in your life that just seem impossible? Today's the day to stop shrugging it off, to stop laughing. And to trust in the one for whom nothing is impossible. Now that doesn't mean that all of your wildest dreams will come true. 
maybe you've been listening to this and you have a dream that up until now has just seemed impossible. Maybe you've been wanting to have children and it just hasn't happened. And the doctors say, yeah, it's, it's probably not. In fact, it will not happen. But you hear this message and you think, oh, wow, well, maybe, it's a po- maybe it is possible. Nothing's impossible with God. It's true, nothing's impossible, but we have to remind ourselves of whom this promise is given to here in this passage of Scripture. In chapter 18, the promise is given just to Sarah. It's just to Sarah. Sarah is the only one who has promised a child here, not to us. God doesn't promise to make all of our wildest dreams come true, but what he has promised What you see in here that is promised to you, you can be sure, no matter how outlandish or incredible it may seem, you can be sure that he will make it happen. And the biggest, the most radical, the most unlikely promise that he has made is to revive the dead. To wash clean the stains to set free the captive, to give sight to the blind, to forgive, to forget, and to become friends with sinners like you and like me. The biggest promise is that someone like you or me should be told that this life is not the end, that (laughs) that not only will we live again, but we'll spend eternity in heaven in the presence of God himself. There are those walking around, and maybe you yourself are struggling with that reality. Really? You really believe that? That just seems too wonderful. Biggest promise is that is frail and is tainted and is selfish and is conniving and is vengeful and is doubt-filled as we are. That we are invited to a seat at the table of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. The ultimate meal. The beginning of the most epic, the most spectacular, the most intimate, the most perfect, unending fellowship with God. Is anything too hard, too difficult, too wonderful, too spectacular for God? Praise God. The answer is no. Let's pray.